Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series exploring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, helping you set meaningful goals in 2023. Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series, featuring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. In this episode, Ben and I will be discussing goal number eight, decent work and economic growth. We are so excited to be able to bring you the perspective of my good friend, Shalaya Morset. As you heard her perspective in the last episode, goal seven, about affordable and clean energy, I hope you continue to see the value in the work that she is doing with the Office of Economic Impact and Diversity for the U.S. Department of Energy. Goal number eight's objective is to promote inclusive and sustainable economic growth, employment, and decent work for all. So our questions to Shalea went to the core of this, but we first need to understand the history of her office. Shalea Morissette is the Chief of Minority Business and Workforce Division within the U.S. Department of Energy, You'll hear her refer to the Department of Energy as the DOE. Our office being established in 1978, right, it's almost as old as the DOE. And so really our um, functions are to advise on energy policies, to conduct research ongoing, uh, to determine the socioeconomic and environmental effects of national energy programs, uh, and develop and recommend policies to assess minorities and minority businesses, Again, conducting research on energy burden, economic opportunities, and commercialization of energy-related technologies. One of the things that we don't have but we're working on is being able to provide financial assistance in the form of loans. It is in the statute, uh, but currently we don't have it. But we're working on it because that could certainly change the face of energy for minorities. I asked Shalea to break down what a day in her life looks like so we could really start to understand her work. It's, it's insane. It's thinking about the entire country and the needs of minority businesses and workforce across the country. You know, it might be that I'm in California one day looking at oil fields uh, with a group of women. It might be that I'm in Houston talking to Greentown Labs. It might be that I'm in Chicago visiting M-Hub, looking at their innovation and how I can help businesses there. Or it might be that I'm in D.C. and I'm in the office with my team. Or it may be that I'm at home trying to get my dog to not bark on meetings. It just depends. <laughs> Every day is certainly different. <laughs> I can relate to not having my dog bark in the background for sure. Uh, the important thing about Shalea's work is that she is face-to-face -face with minority innovators every day. And they are cooking up some pretty cool ideas. Oh, oh my gosh. I've seen amazing stuff, right? So in Chicago, I met a young woman who made a strapless mask, right? That's washable. And I thought that was amazing. I met a young man named Nana. He actually made a really affordable conversion kit for bikes um, to turn them into electric bikes for like less than 600 bucks. He was amazing because he has so many more ideas. Then I met a company that's based in Boston that's using hemp to extend the life of batteries and capacitors. It, it's like the innovation that's out there is absolutely incredible. 
One of the projects that we were excited to hear about from Shalea was the Small Business Innovation Research Grants, or SBIR for short. This is one way that the DOE is supporting these innovators by providing them with the financial resources to bring these concepts to life. So there is a program that I didn't know about until I started with DOE, and it's called SBIR. It's called Small Business Innovation Research, and the other acronym used for it is Small Business Technology Transfer. And so there's this two programs, they've pulled them together, and they really will fund the idea to get it to commercialization, right? So if you uh, look at some of the topics, the topics were actually just released on November 7th, and it's a wide variety of things. Um, You can go to the website and look at it, but if you were to consider what kind of topics, um, let's see, Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security, Emergency Response, right? Clearly, you'd sort of think, well, we need security for the grid. So if you've got some innovation in that space, um, a solution of some sort, they are very likely to fund that. And in their first wave of funding, you get two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. This is all grant dollars, and in that, that's about you know six twelve months of funding. Then in phase two, if more research is needed, you'll get one point one million to one point six million. Keep in mind that first wave, they're awarding about four hundred awards a year, so there are two waves of funding. In that second wave, for folks that still need funding, they're awarding about 160 awards. So 1.1 million, 160 awards. So each of those folks. And then in your phase three, right, you're getting another million if needed. That's a two-year duration. But in between that time, you're also looking at getting funding, additional funding for internships. So the way that you can really make an impact of getting folks on your team and exposing them to energy, exposing them to innovation, right, and then in that, that sort of fourth wave, you can get another million dollars. So when you're looking at this, it's about six to seven years of funding just for research development and getting you to commercialization. So if you have a novel idea, one, we can't steal it, right? In the way that we know in, in government's past, we have to you know own the historical issues, right? That ideas have been taken predominantly from minorities in years past. So when you're looking at this, these are non-diluted funds. We cannot take your idea. And really... It's to encourage America to get to market first with some of these amazing ideas. So you're looking at stimulating technology innovation. Again, grants, not contracts, your idea, your execution, but really support for R&D. That is the number one program that I would think of for small businesses, especially with a, a unique idea. We have linked to these pages in our show notes. So please do help Shalaya's work by spreading the word about these programs. Additionally, the Department of Energy is seeing some of their highest monetary-driven programs in history, and it is great to see there is an opportunity in the program to help disadvantaged communities to be awarded this money. We asked Shalea to give us her perspective on what it feels like to get those dollars in the hands of those innovators. Well, I'm feeling it in a, in a lot of ways, especially with all the legislation that's come through, right? There's, this is a moment, we've never seen this much money come to the Department of Energy in particular, and we've never seen it mandated in a way that says, look, it has to be really spread evenly, as evenly as we can. With Justice 40, right, 40% of the overall benefits of certain federal investments 
they have to go to disadvantaged communities and looking at how disadvantaged communities is defined with over 30 points that really consider from soup to nuts is this, you know, single family household. Is there no transit line in that area, right? Is it low income? All of those different factors went into just defining that. And so when you look at the programs that are covered under that, that's everything from climate change to critical clean water and, and waste infrastructure. And so looking at how businesses are affected, of course, there's a trickle down to workforce, right? So if you're saying uh, all the financial benefits, and even if they are not direct, and it's not a minority business, a larger business or a predominantly white-owned business will still have to impact positively with a community benefits plan to a disadvantaged community, right? We've mandated that. It's a way that we say we have to do it. We know we had a problem. Here's how we're going to fix it. We're trying to, uh, with every fiber of DOE, ingrain equity in every way. In our last episode, Shalea shared how one in five black households in America are having to decide about whether to eat or turn on the heat in their homes. We certainly still have a long way to go in building a more equitable future for all. When we read the objective of Goal 8 to Shalea, which is, and I quote, to promote inclusive and sustainable economic growth, employment, and decent work for all, she again addressed how the DOE has money that they want to invest back into communities who need it the most. So I think about all of our federal family members. I think about EPA. They've got $27 billion that uh, potentially is going to go into green banking and community banks, right? And, and what does that opportunity look like for everyone? How is that money invested? What does that look like for economic growth? in areas in particular that haven't had access to those kind of dollars? What does that look like for a workforce with those kind of dollars coming into these communities, right? Again, I go back to opportunity. We can get it right if we do it right. We can get it right if we do it right. It is people speaking up about the changes that need to be made that's inspiring. I feel very fortunate to watch this change Shalaya is creating. All of this effort is supporting Target 8.3, promote development-oriented policies that support productive activities, decent job creation, entrepreneurship, creativity and innovation, and encourage the formalization and growth of micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises, including through access to financial services. Speaking of decent job creation, a certified B Corp that is making a huge impact in creating access to good jobs is none other than Grayston Bakery. Grayston Bakery makes all the brownies for Ben & Jerry's ice cream and exists for the sole purpose of creating jobs. The bakery supports their nonprofit, the Center for Open Hiring, which is dedicated to educating other businesses about open hiring practices that Grayston employs in their very own bakery. In July of 2020, we had their then director of Center for Open Hiring, Sarah Marcus, on the show to talk with us about their open hiring practices. Here is Sarah from Episode 5 defining what open hiring is. Open hiring is essentially providing a job opportunity, no questions asked. So the way it works at our bakery is if you want a job on our manufacturing floor, you show up. In person, we do require that you kind of show up in person rather than call in and put your name on a list. It's really like as simple as it sounds. It's a clipboard. 
You put your name and your contact information. The only question we ask is, are you authorized to work in the U.S.? Other than that, we have no requirements. We don't do background checks. We don't do resumes. We don't do interviews even. We don't do drug testing. And when we have roles available, we call folks down the list. We usually hire in cohorts of about 10 and bring them in and explain to them the expectations of the job. And hopefully, if it's not a good fit, they self-select out quickly. But once, they, once they're with us, I mean, they are employees of Grayston. And, and fundamentally, the model is, is about shifting investment away from screening people out and towards investing in employees. So because we spend essentially nothing on recruiting, we have a budget to use for that, that you know, case manager that I described or um, to beef up our onboarding or our training. Companies spend a lot of money screening people out. The, you know, billion, the billion dollar, several billion dollar industry, background checks, credit checks, all of those kinds of barriers to employment that don't necessarily serve their intended purpose because a lot of businesses with heavy kind of entry level workforces still face extremely high rates of turnover. You know, some, some of them in the 50s, some over a hundred in some of the, you know, that food service and, and retail sectors. And so these these um, resources that are spent screening people out are really not not good use of resources. Um, and so open hiring again kind of shifts that towards investing in the employees that do come through your door. I know what you're thinking. A pretty radical way to hire, right? Well, we asked Sarah what common questions they hear from other businesses, and here is her response. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, we often get. So, do you hire murderers? And then sometimes our question back is, well, how do you know that you don't have murderers on your staff right now? (laughs) Background check tells you who got caught. And just because you do background checks doesn't mean that you don't face risks associated with workplace safety and theft. And we really have very low incidence of any of those things. But businesses need to have systems and processes in place for managing the risks that they face, no matter who or how they're hiring. It's really no different for us. And I think people have this idea in their head of what our manufacturing facility must look like, that it must be just chaos and and flour going everywhere. (laughs) And when you come and visit, it looks like a world-class manufacturing facility because that's what it is. We, we supply Unilever and they have the highest quality standards. And so we, we do really try and, and dispel those myths again, that if you do open hiring, that you're somehow going to bring in a, a different or more, quote, dangerous population. And people also have, you know, misconceptions about who's coming out of the prison system, that m- most of the folks who are formerly incarcerated looking for jobs are coming out on nonviolent offenses and they've paid their debt to society. And, and wouldn't you rather that person have a job than have to find some other way of making income? So we, we talk to businesses a lot about a lot of those things. We also get the question of, well, is it only, is it just about the formerly incarcerated? And it's really not. I mean, open hiring serves anyone who for whatever reason, has not been able to get a job through traditional pathways. For us in our community, that does mean we end up hiring some folks who have criminal backgrounds. We don't ask what their background is, so we don't actually know who has a background. But anecdotally, through through our case manager, she kind of provides numbers in aggregate, and we know that we have a, a portion of our of our workforce that has some 
involvement, past involvement with the criminal justice system. But we've talked to other businesses who are interested in other employee uh, potential pools of talent, such as single moms who may not really have a resume, but may want to get back into the workforce or refugees or folks who don't speak English well. And so businesses can think about who they can partner with. Again, this gets back to this idea of partnering with nonprofits, not necessarily being a one-stop shop because no individual business can be, but finding those community-based organizations that serve the populations that you're interested in hiring who may not have historically gotten access to the jobs that you offer. And they become great referral pipelines for you. And it can also do some of that wraparound support as well, because they're already serving the needs other than the job for those who who they serve. Most importantly is understanding how you can implement open hiring or even some of those practices within your own business to create more access to jobs and support goal eight. Here are some tips from our previous episode with Sarah on how to do just that. So first step would be identifying the jobs that would be good candidates for for open hiring. The companies we've worked with are mostly piloting it in one part of their organization. One of the major pilots we have is with The Body Shop, fellow B Corp, that is, they, they decided to start in their distribution center. They have a really large need for seasonal talent around their holiday season. And previously, they were doing background checks and asking for high school degrees and drug tests. And it was honestly really hard for them to hire as many people as quickly as they needed them. And so for them, that was a good place to start. They they did a pilot. It was successful. And now they're thinking about how did they roll that out to their retail stores in a customer-facing capacity. So thinking about kind of that progression is, is a good step to start with. The big one, I would say, is generating buy-in and communicating with your employees, with your leaders, with your customers, with your shareholders. Where we've seen this gone wrong is when companies just kind of start doing it without bringing everyone along through the process. But we think it makes it much more successful when everyone understands what the company is doing, why they're doing it, what's their role in being a part of it. And when we think when that happens, it actually is a really great kind of initiative from a workplace culture standpoint. Because imagine you're a supervisor, frontline supervisor at a warehouse, and suddenly your business decides to do open hiring, and you're not just packing boxes, you're you're changing lives. And we think that that can really bring meaning into the workplace and can be enormously uh, transformative for, for company culture. So I would say developing the roadmap in terms of types of jobs and doing that kind of communication and, and buy-in Developing buy-in, some of that might be like building your own business case for it. I mean, we can tell you, you know, on average, companies spend $4,000 per hire on screening people out, but that's probably not your cost, right? As a, as a, you know, as an, as an individual company. And so thinking through, okay, where, where can we find value here? And that, that can help facilitate some of those conversations. And then that, that partnership development piece is another, another good first step to start talking to those in the community who know you know, what are the populations in our area who are not getting access to employment currently? And how can I partner with these organizations to reach that population and and better support them? We we think having those conversations earlier on is helpful as well. And come talk to Grayson and we can help you. (laughs) 
An example of another certified B Corp right here in Maine with a similar mission to Grayston is MainWorks. MainWorks is an innovative employment company working to provide jobs to people who face barriers to workforce reentry, often the formerly incarcerated and those recovering from substance use disorders. Not long after starting MainWorks, Margot went on to start the Maine Recovery Fund, a nonprofit that helps people re-entering the workforce with everything else it takes to set up for success, like housing, clothing, food, and other support services. We pulled from episode 17, which aired in April of 2021, our conversation with Margot Walsh, MainWorks founder, to share more about their work. And in March of uh, 2011, I started a staffing company called MainWorks. And that was born of a lot of different things. But frankly, at the end of the day, what we do is provide employment for people who are struggling. And and in that regard, there's a lot of people in Maine who are struggling. At the essence, we bring people in to work who are in recovery from substance use disorder and in and reentry from jail and prison. But it had started out in the inverse. I started out as a prison reentry program, but I realized that everybody who I was dealing with had that um, co-occurring monkey on their back of some kind of substance use disorder. So I thought I could better amplify the problem by addressing the problem. The incarceration is a symptom of the fact that for some reason they became addicted to substances throughout their life for whatever reason. So we put everybody to work. We get them out and up and running. And typically we work in construction sector because the construction sector is frankly merit-based and not very... um, concerned about your resume or your credentials. They just want you to show up and work hard and act right and go home at the end of the day and come back the next day. So we provide the employment. MainWorks is the employer. And then in 2017, we started a nonprofit called Maine Recovery Fund because the cost of getting to work, it sounds so easy if you have had a history of employment and you know what you're getting yourself into. But for people who are in that sort of hot mess transition, They need a lot of infrastructure. And so the the 501c3 main recovery fund is the the bumpers and everybody needs them to get started. We have found. So that's what we do. There's a lot we all can be doing to create not only more jobs, but to create more equitable access to those jobs. To close us out, we're sharing Margot's words from episode 17 to remind us all that we're all in this together. Thank you so much. Again, Ben, I want people to understand that in order for any of this to work, you, you can't just have a couple of do-goody companies doing this, and then everybody else is off rogue pursuing capitalism in its traditional sense. Because as a world, as a society, that doesn't get us anywhere. And so we have to take the largest daunting problems that face our generation and address them. Thank you for listening. We are so thankful to you for tuning in to this episode but also all of the episodes that we're publishing in this mini-series. We have linked to all of the speakers and the opportunities they talked about in the show notes. Please be sure to check them out. If you are in the innovation space, read over the SBIR and STTR grants Shalea was talking about. We want to encourage all of you, especially those in decision-making roles in your company, to think about ways you can make your hiring opportunities more accessible. We hope that this series is helping you to set meaningful goals in 2023 and beyond for yourself and your business. Until next time, 
be responsibly different. Slow it down, it's okay. It's on my own bright future and lights today. I can show you too, like it's 1962. Got a bright future. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly, Ben Marine, and Brittany Angelo. We purchased this music from the amazing B Corp Marmoset Music. You can check them out at marmosetmusic.com. To learn more about us, visit responsiblydifferent.com. And to learn more about our parent company, visit dirigocollective.com.